Ayers on the Road, Parenting in a Modern World. Here's Richard and Linda Ayer. Hi there. It's uh, time to talk about parenting again. We're so excited to be back. We've, we've been on a long journey. You know, somebody said to me the other day, Linda, I, I think the implication was that she thought we were getting old because she said, aren't you guys getting a little tired of talking about parenting? <laughs> <laughs> and I said to her, are you kidding? It's the most exciting subject on the planet, and there's always something new to talk about, and our material is just bigger than ever because we get to watch our 23 grandkids now as well as our some of whom are still children, children. And we have to remind our listeners that parenting never ends. It just gets bigger and more expensive. <laughs> Why did you have to put that last part in there? Gosh. <laughs> It's true, you know it. Well, you know, we have we have had quite a time the last uh, couple of weeks because we've been in Europe talking to parents there and hanging out with various family situations. And um, man, oh man, we really, I think, don't you think we learn as much as we teach, Linda, when we get out and meet with parents around the world? Oh, absolutely, and especially this time, especially especially this time, because we went to the Czech Republic and uh, we had a speech there with uh, the young presidents and it was absolutely an incredible experience. Um, Don't you think? We had about 40 couples, about 80 people up in the mountains of um, the Czech Republic and had a fabulous experience. Well, it doesn't sound like very many people, but the cool thing about this particular audience is that each of these individuals are presidents of a company and probably the average size of their company is maybe a thousand employees so if you multiply 40 by a thousand then uh, that's a lot of folks because what we always do is we say go back to your companies come on you're the boss you can do anything you want and tell your your employees how to be better parents and how to do a better job with their balance of their work and their family and if you do guess what it'll help your bottom line that's what a lot of that's what a lot of enlightened businesses are realizing i wish there were more enlightened businesses but they're realizing that if they try their best to to give family-oriented benefits to their employees and even to have sort of an open forum on parenting ideas and on how to sort of balance uh, our limited amounts of time with our family and with our work, what it ends up doing is not just something you do because you're a good guy and you're altruistic and you like children or something. I mean, hopefully all those things are true, but you do it because it will increase the bottom line. It will help your business be a better and more profitable business simply because um, people will stay with you longer. They'll be more loyal as employees, and they'll have a more stable personality because their their home and their family is being taken care of. That's, that's the thing a lot of people don't really realize, Linda, is that uh, – you can't just say, "Oh, well, I'm really good at my job, but I kind of suck as a parent." That that you, you you're probably going to find that most people are pretty good at both of them, or they won't be good at either of them. Well, actually, some parents out there would spank your hands for saying that you suck at parenting. 
<laughs> but, well, I'm just saying, you know, we all suck at parenting. We all wish we were better at parenting, <laughs> right? We all right. we all know we're amateurs at parenting, and we're struggling, and we're learning as we go. I'm just saying that the better you do with your role as a parent in the home, probably the better you'll do at work as well. Well, before you get too far away from what you just said, though, um, the fact that we learn more than we teach, you know, this was such a fascinating group. We love Europe. Of course, we we lived in England for three or four years and loved that. But Europe is so fascinating, but especially the old communist bloc countries, which is where we spent a lot of time and during this time we were gone. And um, as we were sitting up in the mountains having a gourmet dinner with these lovely people who all want to be better parents and who are actually good parents to start out with, um, I realized that all of these people had lived under communism. They were all teenagers or young adults at the time um, communism had the iron grip on their throats. Yeah, because most of them are in their 40s now, so they were probably in their 20s when when the wall fell down. Right. And so I asked the person to the right of me, who was the speaker the next morning, you know, tell me about when uh, the wall fell and uh, when Pavel stood up and said, we want to be independent and so on. Tell us about that. And it was absolutely an incredible story. He said, when communism fell, I was a, a student, and my whole life changed in a moment. He said, suddenly I could do what I wanted, be what I wanted, go where I wanted. It was such an amazing experience. And he did have, I think he has two PhDs, four degrees, and is just a brilliant guy, but was so squelched by communism. And then, you know, other stories. The woman on the left of me said, you know, the fences went right through our property. I, I, we had a big farm. My dad was a butcher, and we had a big farm. But the, there were two big uh, barbed wire fences right through our property, and dogs, and men with guns, and lights. Um, 24-7. And she said, I didn't really think much of it because it's just the way it had been ever since I could remember. Dividing, you mean the fences dividing the communist occupation? Yes, I mean, West Germany was just over the fence from where they were in the Czech Republic. And gosh, to even think about that was just... And then the man next to him, next to her, said, you know, we worked for five years to get a visa for our family, for our two children and us, to just travel to Hungary. It was within the block and so on. Finally it came. We were so overjoyed. And as we were getting ready to leave, the Gestapo came in in the middle of the day, barged into our house, said, give us your passports. You are not going anywhere. Their neighbors had said that we were preparing to leave and they thought we were going to leave the country. So it was a time of such distrust and people telling on people and and looking for people that might be doing something wrong and so on. And so um, that was over. It took them another two years to be allowed to go outside of their city limits. I mean, you just don't have no con. We have no concept of what freedom really is until you experience something like that. I just was, thought it was so fascinating. Yeah, I think you're right. And I, and, and here's the funny thing. I mean, just to interject a little levity in our broadcast for today, we, we always, we're, we're uh, a lot of times what we talk to parents about, especially in our first meeting with them, is how to help your kids to be more responsible. And, and we often include a uh, 
money system. Many of you long-time listeners know this, where kids earn their money instead of getting allowances and so on and so forth. And by the way, just parenthetically, all all of this kind of thing, that if you ever hear us reference something on our show that we talked about another day, uh, don't despair. You can always go to valuesparenting.com, all strung together, values with an S, parenting.com, and you can get pick up on these ideas. But anyway, what I was going to say is that we we build a lot of our lecture around giving kids ownership of things. In other words, having them feel the responsibility of owning their toys, owning their their games and so on. And, and their, their choices clothes. and their decisions and all that. And, and so, you know, we, we kind of were going down that same path and trying to tell, you know, assuming that they had... In the speech and yeah, in, the, in, in our speech and, and one great guy in a nice way said, hey, you know, we get that because we have only had access to any sort of ownership since communism fell. So you're never going to find an audience that appreciates the, the motivation and the sort of incentive that, that real ownership gives to people because we've watched our country be transformed. And they really have. I mean, it's these entrepreneurs who are changing uh these these former Soviet bloc countries. It's not the government. I mean, the government has to let them do things and so on. But but basically, the transformation in people's lifestyles, in in their prosperity, in in pretty much the houses they live in and everything, is being created by entrepreneurs. And and it's so interesting to talk to these guys about that because, you know, early entrepreneurship in the Czech Republic and in Poland and in some of these countries. What it basically consisted of is anyone who had a car and could drive across into West Germany or wherever and buy a bunch of things and then drive them back and mark the price up and sell them, that was an entrepreneur. Yeah. And and that's about all you had for a little while. And then gradually over the the last 20 years, they've grown more sophisticated. And it's it's a good economy now. In fact, you know, I wish I had more invested there and less in in countries that are always giving people bailouts. Well, plus Prague is probably the most beautiful city in the world. And we did actually have a chance to go to Poland, also Krakow. We had been there a couple months ago, but we had a chance to go back. And speaking of businessmen and entrepreneurs, we had some friends there that we had met a couple of months earlier. And he was a graduate of Wharton and an intern who was asked to go to Poland to help them figure out Capitalism. I mean, how to turn well, to their country them, around. Yeah, to help them start new businesses. Because right. starting a new business in a country that had been under communism was like rocket science. I mean, no one had a clue what to do or how to do it. And and uh, our friend John was one of a small number of recent business school graduates that got in on a program where they went over there and helped people figure out how to start little businesses. And, and in his case... <laughs> It was pretty interesting because he found a wife and has lived there ever since. He has, and his wife is delightful. She actually told us a lot about her experience with communism. She said that when she was a little girl, once in a while they'd get shoe coupons, and they could go to the shoe store and get some shoes, and it was the most exciting event of the year. And she'd go there, and they would just hand her a pair of shoes. 
So then her job was to go out in the neighborhood and find somebody who had uh, some shoes that they would trade with her because they didn't fit her. She said it never occurred to her that you could go to a store and get shoes that just fit first thing. <laughs> she had to go down trade around until she found just the right shoes to fit her. Well, and of course, it all ties, you know, some of you may say, well, why are they giving us this travelogue? Where's the parenting stuff? This this all in our minds really ties into families and parenting because what was so fascinating is that, uh, believe it or not, a lot of these people felt like in terms of raising a family and being close as a family, there were actually, strange as it sounds, some advantages in communism, because frankly, they didn't have much else to do. They didn't have absolutely. They they had no TVs. They had no, you know, when you're just a family and there's nowhere to go and there's a curfew and you have nothing, you tend to hang around with your kids quite a lot and do a lot of talking. (laughs) Yeah, in fact, the woman, one of the women at our table said, the thing I remember most about communism was time. We just had time. Everybody had to work, but then certain hours, and then we just came home, and there was nothing to do but just talk to your family. And she said, I thought it was so boring. In hindsight, that's one of my sweetest memories of just sitting around talking, with my family and communicating with them. I mean, they couldn't hang yeah. out with friends as teenagers or anything. They were really so confined, but there were some advantages to that. Yeah, and she says, now, you know, we've got money, we've got prosperity, we've got uh, cars, we've got boats, we've got all kinds of things, and our kids have cell phones and games. And I mean, it's just like listening to any American describe the problem of the entitlement trap when we had to pinch ourselves and realize that we're <laughs> we're sitting here in Poland. Now, we're going to take a brief break, but when we come back, uh, I'm going to tell you, listeners, a little more about this particular mother in Poland, modern mom, very bright, very uh, avant-garde, very sophisticated, telling us about why we Americans are making our kids fat and yeah, why let's they talk don't about do that. it. That was fun. All right. We'll See we'll you right in a minute. Back. And we're back. And I am excited to talk about this because we had the most fascinating discussion over dinner one night about food. Um, we were well, let, sitting- me set, let me set the stage. We were sitting with uh, John and his wife, Kasia. She's Polish. He was one of the, like I mentioned in the first half, an American that had come over right after communism fell and had found Kasia and married and they have children and he's he lives there now. He's I don't know if he's a, a Polish citizen, but anyway, we're sitting with them in a in a restaurant on a very busy square in downtown Krakow, and and the, we're eating, so the conversation is turning to food and. Uh, Kasia offers the thought that why do you Americans make your kids fat? Why why are Americans all so fat? Look out there. See if you can see any fat people on this square. If you can, they're going to be an American. (laughs) And, I mean, she didn't say it like that. It wasn't that she was (laughs) challenging, but she was actually quite curious. Why is it that Americans are so fat? And, And it didn't bother her so much. If an adult is fat, maybe he made that choice, or maybe there's a problem with his health or whatever. But what bothered her is how many kids are fat in America. And she's kind of troubled, like, why can't you do something about these poor kids who are having this huge disadvantage of being fat? It really was a fascinating conversation. 
And she, again, was the one that um, we mentioned earlier that got the coupon for shoes, but she also said that when I said, well, were you starving? Were you hungry? She said, no, no, but when when I would go to my mother and say, Mommy, I'm hungry, she would say, well, go to the garden and get a turnip. Pull up a turnip or a carrot and and have fun. A carrot, yeah. (laughs) And wash it off carefully and eat it. And she said she grew up eating turnips and carrots. And she said, to this day, I salivate when I see a turnip. She said, I, she said, I love them. She said, I mean, her, her theory is pretty simple. She said, kids like what they learn to eat when they're kids. And so I love carrots and turnips. I just get all excited when I see a nice one. I want to eat it. And, and I thought, wow, that is a whole new paradigm when you think of most kids that we know who... Uh, the only time they salivate is when you drive past McDonald's. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, it, it isn't just during the communist time. I mean, it's followed through into their culture. And part of that was it was cult, their culture to start out with, but part of it was they were so deprived and in poverty. But still, I mean, we talk about our, our parents and grandparents who, <clears throat> who went through such hard times when they were young through the Depression. But this is kind of the carry through to them they do not eat a lot of sugar in fact she said our children go to school and if they they are just not allowed to have anything sweet in their lunch and if the teacher finds something even a granola bar that has sugar in it we get a really stern reprimand we get we a do no not allow sweets on our school she said my mother babysat for me one weekend and one week and she said she sent a little candy bar in the lunch with her their little daughter, and boy, did they hear about it. Please, do not break the rules of our school. We are not allowing any sugar in these children's lunches. And man, wouldn't that be awesome if we could do that in the U.S.? So the bottom line, really, uh, <laughs> you know, in her mind, I mean, this is what was so interesting, talking to this mom who... You know, she wasn't a doctor, she wasn't a nutritionist, she didn't have a lot of sophisticated theories, but the world looked pretty simple to her because she was basically saying, look, we live here in Poland, we're, we're you know, we're we're not a third world country, we, you know, we have industry, we're doing things, we're, we're quite prosperous in our own way, and our kids aren't fat. The reason is very simple. We don't give them stuff that makes them fat. In other words, to her... She didn't see it as a mental problem or a, a financial problem or a medical problem or a health problem. She saw it as a parenting problem. Yeah, she definitely did. And, and I said, well, well, Kasia, don't make it sound so simple. I mean, what, what if you've got kids who, you know, all they'll eat is, you know, burgers or peanut butter sandwiches? And she said, she just got a kind of a fierce look on her face and said, well, you must forbid that. <laughs> Yes, she did, and she was serious, but it was true. I mean, we were sitting on a square. It was the same square where the Pope came during communism and, in code, talked to a million people about what they should do. Pope John Paul, the Polish Pope. Of course, he was from Krakow, so he is their national hero. But it was that same square that was full of a million people, and it looked like there were a million people out there that day, but... Actually, it was quite amazing. We couldn't find a fat person on that square. 
I, I didn't see one. We were looking for them, and they just weren't there. Well, she said if you came back here in the summer, you'd see a lot of fat people because the Americans would be here then. I mean, yeah. that's how blunt she was. <laughs> but, you know, I, we don't want to offend anyone listening. This is not a simple problem. A lot of us know that. We have grandchildren with with problems. I mean, it's it's... But it, but it is a big problem, and what I learned from her is that it really is, in many, many ways, a parenting problem. That doesn't mean it's easy to solve. That doesn't mean you can just come home one day and say, we got a new menu, kids. We're eating carrots and turnips. I mean, right. it's, it's not that simple. But what is simple, I think, is that we can't, as parents, we really can't blame it on someone else. We can't blame yeah. it on the fast food industry. We can't blame it on you know, uh, medical science that hasn't kept up. We've got to, the buck has to stop with us. And, you know, when we speak to young mothers, I can hardly think of a time that we've done that, that someone mother hasn't come up to me and said, well, what do I do about my child who won't eat anything but, you know, sugar or what they want? And it is so scary to think that we're allowing our children to really ruin their health by just not being total. I mean... Uh, so this, mothers have said, my child would starve if I told them they couldn't have any sugar. They would just starve to death. Well, maybe they need to starve for a few days. But on, on the other hand, what we usually did at our house <clears throat> is during dinner, if they didn't happen to like what we had for dinner, we would just say, do you want a lot or a little? That was the choice. Yeah, when the food came around the table, it wasn't, do you want this or don't you? It was, hey, here's something nice. Do you want a lot or a little? Well... You know, if it was something I didn't like, they'd say, well, a little, you know, but, but at least they felt like they'd met. These are little kids, right? And you give them a choice right. whenever you can. I mean, you say, do you want the red juice or the orange juice, you know? But but the point is you, you get them tasting things. And honestly, I believe kids, I mean, again, this was refreshing to us because this woman made it so simple. They They will like what they're used to eating. And now, if they're used to eating the wrong thing, making the transition, getting them over to like something else, yeah, that's, that's a little painful. But yeah. man, oh man, I think it's worth it. And uh, frankly, we've got some of our kids who probably do a little better job with that than others of our kids. Yeah, we do. Well, grandchildren. I mean, we have grandchildren who are very picky eaters. And of course, when they're at our table, we say, do you want a lot or a little? And um, I don't know how much they love that. But um, at the same time, we have a mother who, honestly, she's been feeding her children health food since they were little kids. And I'll never forget one day we were at their home and and their seven-year-old came and said, Mom, what are we having for dinner? And she said, well, we're having tofu. <laughs> and this little seven-year-old said, tofu, I love tofu. <laughs> And I will never forget that. I mean, what would happen to most households if you said that? But then this same child now has decided he's not eating hamburgers. I mean, he's not, he doesn't like beef. He saw some movie on TV about slaughtering cows, and so he decided he's never eating beef again. So we just uh, popped a hamburger in his hand the other day, and he just crumbled. And so there there are so many eating issues Um Everybody has to deal with it in their own way, but I think we can be so much more aware of the sugar that goes into our kids' mouths. I mean, this whole thing with Mayor Bloomberg and the giant-sized drinks, which we think are absolutely crazy, and sorry to offend anybody who loves those big biggies, but 
Um, it really it is crazy to inhale that much sugar and put that much in your system. Now, Linda, we're almost out of time, but we don't want to let anyone think we're preaching at them. You know, again, we are fellow strugglers. We don't have all the answers. We like to, every week, though, bring up some things that cross our minds as we're out meeting with parents and speaking to them, and those are the things that happened to us this last week. We, we're also aware that we're going into summer now and that it's a very interesting time for parenting. And um, I would encourage you listeners to take a look at powerofmoms.com, which is our daughter Saren's website, because there's a lot of stuff on there recently about making a summer a great time for you as a family, powerofmoms.com. Well, there's a summer uh family summer kit that teaches how to keep kids involved and engaged with academics as well as with getting done what they need to get done and getting a routine for the summer. And I think I think they've had 80,000 hits on that particular It's amazing. Thing. Parenting so is a thing go we can to all... It. It's really got some we great We can ideas. all learn from each other, but uh, we're happy to be on the road. We're happy to be home from the road, and we're happy to be with you on the show, Ayers on the Road, and we'll see you next week. Talk to you soon. 